Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, April 3rd, 2023. On the show today, news, listener questions, and surveys. Then in our main segment, Jim continues talking about the relationship between Disney and two famous architects, Michael Graves and Robert A.M. Stern. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks why we approximate large numbers as infinite when every number is closer to zero than infinity. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Len. I was actually sitting here Googling alternate Buzz Lightyear catchphrases, because of course, Buzz's catchphrase is to infinity and beyond, and oddly enough, to Toledo and beyond was considered at one point. I, I don't think that quite went as far as they wanted over at Pixar. To Toledo and beyond. You know, that, that could be funny as like a uh, as like a beta Buzz Lightyear thing. <laughs> to Toledo and beyond. There we go. There we go. There is something about To Infinity and Beyond that's just so perfect for oh, that. Oh, no, no, no. Totally, totally. I mean, it just hit that sweet spot for those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s watching bad sci-fi. And it's just sort of yeah. like, yep, that's how they talked. That's, that's exactly it right there. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim. Before we begin, let's do a quick show dedication. This uh, show is dedicated to our friend BioReconstruct, who is on the mend. We hope he gets well soon. Jim, did I tell you I actually met BioReconstruct? You actually went to Dr. Phillips and brought him a sandwich, and I I have made the same offer. But, of course, it depends on whether or not he he lingers in the hospital this time around while you and I are down doing our, our thing at the Galactic Star Cruiser. You know, and I and I told a couple of you know common friends that we had, and you know, hey, I, I took care of Bio for today, so mm-hmm. you know he's good and everything. And everyone asked the same question, like, what's he, what's he look like? What mm-hmm. does Bio Reconstruct look like? And, and to me, Jim, that's like asking, what does what does love look like or go. warmth? How do you describe a sunset? Exactly, it's it's you know it's it is what you make of it, and there it's not go. really the look; it's more the feeling of inner peace. Ah. Okay. That you were with. That's the, the main thing I took away. It's like, it's just, it's so calming to be in his presence. An amorphous presence, I might add. But, okay. you know, but a presence. The other interesting thing, Jim, mm-hmm. is, is this. Uh, he has a, uh, he had a bag of like, you know, stuff that for overnight bag for mm-hmm. the hospital that he had packed in yep. advance. He's like, hey, would you mind going out to my car and getting this bag? And he gave me his car keys. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you'll, you'll figure out which car it is. I'm like, is it because it's an Apache helicopter? Is that... <laughs> Is that anyway? So I found I found his car, and in yep. the trunk was his, his overnight pack. And I couldn't help myself, Jim. Mm-hmm. I was there. I was looking in the trunk of Bio Reconstruct's car, and I had to know mm-hmm. what else was in the trunk. And I swear to God, Jim, mm-hmm. it was a quick glance because you know security cameras all around and everything, sure, sure. and I had to get back to to Bio. I think he had six million dollars in treasury bills and the deed to Windsor Castle. I'm not entirely certain, but I'm pretty sure. Important to stress here, you had to move the Ark of the Covenant to actually see these documents. Am I, am there I, was sort of a glowing sort of orb so. around it. Anyway, but I hope it gets well. So. Same All thing right. here. Same thing here. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Captain Jellybones, Brandon Smith, Braden Mocker, and Kemperin H. And longtime subscribers E.S. Menken, Philip Schwab, David B., and Donna Quack. Jim, these are the Disney cast members who have to explain the dessert rules to guests at Roundup Rodeo Barbecue, the new sit-down restaurant at Disney's Hollywood Studios. These folks say that while you can eat however much you want of the blueberry cheesecake, apple pie, strawberry peach pie, silk pie, or cupcake a la Forky, 
your entire table has to place in the top eight in the team barrel racing, team roping, or breakaway roping competitions to qualify for desserts. True story. Oof. I think, Jim, Disney's efforts at, at uh, uh, cost-cutting here mm-hmm. have maybe gone a little too far. Perhaps, perhaps. But I've been hearing about uh, Roundup Rodeo Barbecue. And, and mm-hmm. In fact, for a lot of folks, they talk about how when you go into Toy Story Land at Disney's Hollywood Studios, I mean, it has a kind of a loud soundscape. And so they looked at the initial designs and the setup, and they thought, ooh, it's going to be loud inside there. And I'm not hearing that. Right. I'm hearing from folks that... They like the price point, they like the decor, and they're surprised at how you can actually hold a real conversation inside that building. Oh, that's uh, that's really good to hear, because one of the things that I was concerned about was, in fact, the noise mm-hmm. uh, from it. But good, good to hear. Okay. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Mm-hmm. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, last week we mentioned that Disney was testing a 30% discount Mm -hmm. on Galactic Star Cruiser voyages for DVC members. Mm -hmm. And this morning, Jim, Disney announced an extension of that 30% discount to whatever's left of the annual passholder base. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Available most dates in April, May, and June of this year, Mm -hmm. 30% off. And Jim, I mentioned that because you and I are going on the Star Cruiser. We are. We are. In a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Super interesting. Also, Disney's announced more hotel discounts. Save up to 25% on stays most nights, July 11th to August 20th. Then the discount jumps up from 25% to 30% Mm -hmm. between August 21st and September 14th. And then back down to 25% September 15th to September 28th. So, Jim, it looks like middle of July to the end of September Mm -hmm. between 25 and 30% off. Yeah, well, remember, this is Orlando during the summer, and it's like, oh, honey, let's go vacation on the surface of the sun. Yeah. So early June is always crowded because it's the first couple weeks of spring break, Mm -hmm. and people want to go to to Walt Disney World. And June stays relatively crowded for that. But then we've always seen a uh, sort of drop-off around mid-July, and then definitely a second drop-off around the middle of August. So that 30% discount that begins on August 22nd is historically been around the time when we see the steepest drop-offs. But if you're willing to go to Walt Disney World mm-hmm. in August, and you, know, and you can manage the heat and the humidity and you know, possibly a hurricane or two, you know what? You'd like some adventure with your vacation. 30% off mm-hmm. is, is actually a decent discount for, uh, uh, for those nights. Yeah, I don't know. I'd definitely jump on that. Also, uh, Jim, Disney's announced the first of 7,000 planned layoffs this week. Mm-hmm. Among the initial wave was the entire Metaverse division. Did you see this? Yeah. Um, I, I think you pointed out this was a big initiative for the company, wasn't it? Right. I mean, uh, you know, everything that we've heard mm-hmm. is that Disney was supposed to be one of the very big initial partners with Apple mm-hmm. on Apple's upcoming virtual reality headsets, which mm-hmm. should launch later this year for around $3,000 is what I'm hearing. And that, you know, Disney was supposed to be a huge, huge player in that, you know, with, with that, you know, dedicated division mm-hmm. for it. So, so laying that entire group off mm-hmm. kind of calls that whole future into, into question. If you look back over the past 20 or 30 years of the history of the Disney company, there has been this pattern to them in the gaming space. They are all oh, in, yeah. then they are all out, they license it out, then they're all in again. And just sort of like that, we're all out again. All right, so so he set the timer for two and three years, Lynn, and Disney will be back in this space in a huge way. 
Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is the most cyclical, I think, of Disney's businesses, is, is the gaming part, yeah. Oh, and by the way, it is also worth noting that this round of layoffs, according to what Mr. Iger said over the last day or so, it's the first of three between now three. and, I want to say, July? Summer? Yeah, summer, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so it's uh, initial wave, big set of cuts, mm-hmm. third round of cuts. Yeah. So the next one will be the, uh, the largest, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, uh, last news item is going to be important to folks who've listened to the show for a while. Remember, Jim, back in 2021, we did a show on the earliest known script for the American Adventure. Mm -hmm. And that script came to us courtesy of Ted Linhart, who runs the website Mm DisneyDocs.net. So it turns out that Ted now owns the original pitch document for the American Adventure. It's... Yeah, he and I had been watching the exact same auction mm-hmm. uh, for this document. It's dated March 10th, 1976, mm-hmm. and it's titled USA Show in World Showcase. The pitch document comes from Marty Sklar and John Hench, mm-hmm. and it's addressed to Card Walker. It says it's, quote, a beginning idea for a USA show in World Showcase. And so a couple of interesting things there. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is that Ted's agreed to give us access to the document Woo-hoo. as soon as he gets his hands on it. So mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Okay. But the, uh, the other interesting thing is that uh, the overview describes, quote, a space-themed grand finale called Challenge of the Future. Now, what's kind of intriguing about this, and if you go back to the site plan for Epcot for 76-77, remember the U.S. pavilion wasn't on the other side of World Showcase Lagoon. It was right. actually, it, it straddled the spot between Future World and where World Showcase began. And in fact, right. it kind of a, a weird futuristic rotunda type structure. So you, you got to wonder the space-themed grand finale, if that was supposed to be sort of the narrative glue that kept World Showcase and Future World together. I think I think you're exactly right there because if you're coming in from either side of World Showcase mm-hmm. and the last thing you see before going to Future World mm-hmm. is the American Adventure, then it would make sense to have Challenge of the Future as the thing you see right before you go into Future World. There you go. So. Yeah, so I can't wait to get my hands on this uh, on this script. Super looking forward to it. And kudos for Ted for coming out on top in this auction. He had, uh, I, I sent him a note saying like, you're watching this, right? And mm-hmm. he's like, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Actually, we have time for one quick survey. Mm-hmm. Kate sent in an annual passholder survey she got from Disney. And the question was this. Mm-hmm. Which, if any, of the following reasons describe why you may or may not renew your annual pass when it expires? And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. One is that it mixes both the things you like about the annual pass and the things you don't like mm-hmm. about the annual pass. And there's like around two dozen mm-hmm. different reasons listed but it's things like the annual pass is not worth the price mm-hmm. and uh, I love Disney mm-hmm. are both choices that you can make on the survey. And what I'm trying to figure out here, Jim, is from a survey perspective, why would you mix things you like and don't like in the same question but not organize them in a way that all of the things you like and all of the things you don't like are in different sections? Classically, in a, a survey like this, if you group the negatives and the positives, you know, people will lean into both directions. What's kind of interesting about doing sort of the mix and match here is, for example, as we go through the responses here, we have, I don't feel appreciated as a pass holder, but at the same time, acknowledging the duality of, I enjoy visiting the parks. Right. 
So it's not an either or. It, it can be, you know, I am worried that I will not be able to use my pass due to the limited capacity of the parks. But at the same time, one of the reasons that people get these the annual passes, they want to be sure to get in on the 50th anniversary celebration or food and wine. Yeah, I think that's a great point because everyone knows that there are positives and mm. negatives to having an annual pass, right? So the cost, you know, the upfront cost is mm-hmm, one, mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the negatives. But you know, the idea that you should be able to, with an annual pass, get in on any day you want, but mm-hmm. yet the park reservation system means that sometimes you can't. It's both a plus, in mm-hmm. theory, and a negative, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested from a survey construction perspective mm-hmm. how you tease out what's really important there, especially when you've got, like I said, a couple dozen different options there. Mm-hmm. Like, is it combinations of things that you're looking for there? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know this one. Let's not overlook the obvious here. You know, half the time people write a survey with a predetermined result in mind. And the fact right. that they have muddied the waters with 24 different questions that go all over the map, perhaps it's a way to the effect of, look, they said they love the parks. Yeah, they're concerned about the price and the fact they can't get in, but they love the parks. Yeah, uh, well, so we'll see what happens uh, with this. It was a good survey overall. A lot of the uh, the same questions that you've seen um, about annual pass holders. But this one, I think, was the interesting one because I hadn't seen this type of sort of dual-use question. No, 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 absolutely. So thanks so much to Kate for sending this along. And speaking of uh, surveys, uh, last week's show, we read a Disney survey from Lauren mm-hmm. that asked why she didn't use Disney's minivan service, mm-hmm. which is a partnership with Lyft. And I pointed out that for most rides, point to point within Walt Disney World, mm-hmm. minivans are about three times as expensive mm-hmm. as a regular Lyft ride. So why would anyone mm-hmm. use minivans, right? Uh, and we actually got a, a number of emails from listeners on this. The most common answer, Jim, appears to be mm-hmm. because car seats. So Steve writes in to say, uh, mm-hmm. while sometimes rideshare services have car seat options available, there's a lot of unverified questions. Mm-hmm. Are the car seats expired? Have they ever been in an accident when not in use? Are they stored in a way that doesn't jeopardize the integrity of the seat? Is the driver trained on installing them? Mm-hmm. And when were they last cleaned? All fair questions. So that's a great point, Steve. And then Bill from New Jersey wrote in to say, the minivans use Disney cast members and are themed on the outside with themed music mm-hmm. on the inside. On top of that, they always have two car seats, which we need with two young children. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, we prefer not to leave the bubble whenever we can help it. So I get that. So not leaving the bubble, having the two car seats with people who are trained to use the car seats, that kind of makes sense. It's, it's the interesting thing there is the premium of mm-hmm. 3X. But I guess if that's what you're getting in return, that makes sense to a lot of people. I don't know if that does. Oh, uh, uh, before we move on here, we also have a quick corrections corner. Oh, good. While Len was away, Jim Schull and I were talking about the Dream Machine, uh, that thing that was installed at Disneyland's hub that then rose up and awarded uh, a lucky guest a brand new car every day of, the, of this year-long presentation. Uh, however, when Mr. Schull and I were talking about this, we talked as if it were done for Disneyland's 30th birthday celebration in 1985, when it was actually done for Disneyland's 35th birthday celebration, which held, was held in 1990. Ah. Listener Robert Spence oh, reached out to point out this error via Twitter, which, again, keyed off of the feature piece I did for Disney Dish earlier in the month, uh, when I talked about what ultimately inspired Marty Scholar to place the partner statue in the hub in November of 1993. And to be honest, now that Robert shared this info, the timeline makes much more sense. I mean, think about it. Right. Dream Machine had been coming up out of the center of the hub for much of 1990. 
partner statue gets dropped into this exact same spot just three years later. So that's Marty moving quickly to prevent this from ever happening again. So thanks to Robert for pointing out that error. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim wraps up the history of Disney's collaborations with architects Michael Graves Mm -hmm. and Robert A.M. Stern. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Wow, it's April already? The first part of spring, a time of renewal. Up here in New Hampshire, this is typically when people head out into their yards and begin to clear away all the downed branches and snapped tree limbs that were left behind when the snow finally melts. We had some pretty severe storms up here over the past few weeks, so we've all got a lot of yard work ahead of us. And while I was a kid, I didn't like yard work. It honestly felt like forced labor. But now that I'm an adult and I'm a bit more self-aware, I I get it. Uh, Because it's the area directly around my own home that I'm helping to make look better, I'm now willing to put in the time, at least when it comes to yard work. But if we're being completely honest here, there is no such thing as being too self-aware. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially when we, as people, are always growing and changing. And if that's something you'd like to tackle this spring, well, therapy can be a great way to deepen your self-awareness and understanding. Because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk things out. And BetterHelp can help you with that. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are now. I mean, when I did therapy right after my divorce, I I found it to be incredibly helpful. It gave me the coping skills I needed to get through that incredibly difficult stretch of my life, skills that I still use even today. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule, just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dish today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's episode. On last week's show, we left off with the Swan and Dolphin, which were designed by Michael Graves, opening up, and the jokes that inevitably followed, and the uh, sort of negative reaction mm-hmm. that a lot of people had towards that postmodern architecture, mm-hmm. right? So it looked like uh, Michael Eisner had said, you know, Michael, thank you for what you've done. That's mm-hmm. that's fantastic. But it looks like Michael Eisner was ready to go in a different direction. He was. He was. But before we, we jump in here, I want to follow up. When we started last week's show, we talked about how uh, Jane and Michael Eisner had last year put their uh, Malibu compound, uh, the, the nine building setup, which, again, had been designed by Robert A.M. Stern. You know, up for sale in May of last year for a mere $225 million. Folks who are out in L.A. wanted to point out that maybe Mr. Eisner wasn't just doing this because he was looking to simplify his life. Uh, Wanted to point out that Measure ULA, uh, which got voted in in November of 2022 and actually goes into effect on April 1st of this year. It's called the Mansion Tax Bill. Oh, okay. Uh, And the interesting thing about Measure uh, ULA is that it imposes a 4% tax on all property sales above $5 million and a 5.5% tax on all properties above $10 million. 
and this tax must be paid by the seller. Oh, interesting. The monies that are raised by levying this tax are going to be used uh, to fund the creation of affordable housing in the Los Angeles area, as well as create resources for tenants who are on the edge of being unhoused. Measure ULA is projected to generate $900 million a year, Len. Oh, that's a pretty decent chunk of change. That is, that is. Uh, And LA has a serious homeless problem, but it also has an interesting issue with thousands of older area residents who are, in effect, on the verge of being priced out of their apartments or the homes that they rent due to continual uh, rent increases. So uh, that's supposedly going to be applied to this. But we don't need to worry about Jane and Michael Eisner. You know, again, even if they don't sell, you know, or it takes a while to sell their Malibu compound, they also have their Spruce Lodge home up in Colorado, which was also designed by uh, Robert A.M. Stern. Oh, thank God. This brings us to how Robert A.M. Stern actually connected with Michael Eisner, how he came to design so many projects for the Walt Disney Company in, in the late 80s and, and into the 90s. And it's quite the list, Len. I mean, it starts with the casting center, Walt Disney World, it opened in May of 89. We then transitioned to the Yacht and Beach Club. Uh, that's November of 1990. Then there's the Newport Bay Club at Disneyland Paris, a 1,098-room resort that opened with you know the whole resort in April of 1992. I like to think of it as Yacht and Beach Club, too. Well, there you El- go. Ele- electric Boogaloo. It does definitely have that vibe, doesn't it? Yeah. We then have what's now known as the Roy E. Disney Feature Animation Building in Burbank, which opened December of 94. We then have the Disney Boardwalk Inn and Villas. Uh, that's July of 96. And in the middle of that going on, Stern helped create the master plan for Celebration Florida, as well as developing several key buildings for the project. Founder's Day, by the way, is November 12, 1996. And then to date, his last project for the company was the Disney Ambassador Hotel, the first Disney-branded hotel at the Tokyo Disney Resort, which opened in July of 2000. And that's an amazing 11-year run yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. That, that, that keeps a design firm busy. Yeah, and especially when you consider that when when Michael Eisner tapped Robert A.M. Stern to come begin designing buildings for the Mouse House, this American postmodern architect was largely known as someone who designed striking private homes and villas rather than hotels and resorts. Really? Yeah. I, I, always, I only know Robert A.M. Stern from his commercial stuff. Oh, that's interesting. These buildings typically are done in... Uh, a lot of historic styles, which sort of echoes, if you think about, you know, Boardwalk and, and Newport and, and likewise Yacht and Beach Club. But uh, Robert's born back in May of 39, studies at Columbia and Yale in the early 60s. He first works in partnership with John Hagman from 1969 to 1977 before striking out in his own to establish Ramza, which is the firm known as Robert A.M. Stern Architects. In the late 1970s and early 80s, as we mentioned, he's doing private homes at this point, and, and which are typically built in resort areas like the Hamptons or Quag, uh, likewise okay. the Cape out in Massachusetts. And it's reportedly that during this period where Robert A.M. Stern comes on Michael Eisner's radar. And as we mentioned on the last show, when, when Michael comes on board as the new CEO of Disney in uh, September of 1984... He's determined to have this enormous entertainment company, which is now in charge of, start building entertaining buildings, structures that when people see them, uh, it would make them smile. That's a fun idea in concept, yep. Len, but it's hard to achieve in reality. And 
Have you ever heard the story of when Michael found out that there just wasn't enough space, office space on the Disney lot in A485? He instituted a building program, and one of the ideas that he pushed forward was a Mickey-shaped building that was supposed to stretch. I'd heard about this, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, but I didn't know it got this far. I heard it was a rumor that they were oh, going to do no, a, no. a there, Mickey-shaped building. There yeah. are at least early rough drawings of this 11th And when we say Mickey-shaped, we don't mean like the head as the no. campus. We mean like a building that looked like Mickey Mouse standing up, right? Yes, yes. In fact, yeah, the, okay. the gimmick was that the entry points would be on either side of Riverside Drive. They'd be Mickey's feet. You'd take an elevator up basically to Mickey's pants, which is where the lobby uh, and the welcome center would be located. And and because this is a family-friendly show, Len, there's at least five jokes here we're not doing. We're not going to do, yes. There we go. <laughs> Thankfully, Frank Wells was ultimately able to persuade Michael Eisner that a giant Mickey-shaped building that people could see as they drove by on the 134 Maybe not a good idea. Uh, that yeah. now might be a good point to bring in real architects to shape and mold Michael's notion about the whole buildings that make people smile. So this is when Robert A.M. Stern comes through the door and begins having conversations about possible projects. And mm. at this very moment, Walt Disney World is in the middle of a construction boom. Mid-1980s, you know. Works just started on the Disney MGM Studio Tour. We talked about the work that was being done on the Dolphin and the Swan on the last show. And the resort is really going to need to staff up. It was going to okay. properly operate and then maintain all of these new enterprises. So it's decided that Walt Disney World now needs a new casting center. Not one that's hidden all the way to the back of the property out behind the Magic Kingdom and at the center building but rather one that can be seen right on out, out on I-4. A building that, you know, when you look at it, it says, wow, Walt Disney World is a fun place to work. You should come apply here. That ultimately winds up as Robert A.M. Stern's introductory project at Disney, the new Walt Disney World Casting Center. Uh, he gets the assignment in 1987, and mm -hmm. he and his 300-employee company begin to cast around for, okay, what would be fun here? What would be different? And Ramsam has mostly been doing striking private homes that then fit in with historic New England resort communities, which is why it's it's so bizarre that they opted to go in a completely different direction with the Walt Disney World Casting Center, that Stern's people decided to use the Doge's Palace in Venice, Italy. Right, yeah. As sort of the inspiration for the 61,000 square foot structure, which supposed to be built along the west, westbound lane of I-4 in the vicinity of the resort's nighttime entertainment, shopping, and dining district, which back then is still known as the Walt Disney World Shopping Village, where Pleasure Island is still a year or two out at this point. And you and Laurel travel to Venice, right? Yeah. The Doge's Palace now is a museum right by Canal Side. Did you guys get there or...? Yeah, the interesting thing on the inside is, like, the outside is, is very pretty. Don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. right? The outside is, like, classic Palladian architecture. Mm -hmm. The inside, I would not call it welcoming. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a lot of marble, mm -hmm. and it's got some big spaces in it, you know, with the super impressive ceilings and things like that. But it's not something that you would say, like, it's, it, it's kind of dark. People talk about the Bridge of Sighs and how romantic it is, and... What people forget is back when this was built in 1340, the Bridge of Size is what connected the Doge's Palace to the prison next door. Right, yeah. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell the two apart. There we go. Yeah. The inside tells you all you need to know about 
the effects of modern lighting on <laughs> modern society. Like, like how much good lighting really helps. Oh, yeah. no, no, absolutely. But for much the same reason of what you're describing here, people like the Doge's Palace, really? And But Stern once explained that his design philosophy was to take work from the past and reinterpret it for a modern audience. And yeah, I pulled this quote. According to Stern, architecture is the dialogue with the past carried on in the present with an eye toward the future. So I think in much the same way as what you just said, outside, you know, charming, inside, a little scary. So it's like Stern, when he decided to, Walt Disney World Casting Center would be modeled after the Doge's Palace, he really leaned into making the interior of this building as welcoming as possible. And it actually, it starts right at the front door line. Have you ever been over to the casting center or? No. Any member of the public can, can go into the structure because, of course, this is where Disney invites people to come in and apply for jobs. So, well, first of all, right out front, you know this is Disney because the doorknob on the building is the talking doorknob from the Alice in Wonderland uh, you know, from 51. Oh, that's great. Yep. Got to remember, this thing, designed in 87, opens in March of 89, so it's kind of a time capsule for Disney in the late 80s. So, for example, when you, you enter the actual lobby, you now find yourself in an oval rotunda, and there are these pillars that you might expect to find inside of an Italian palace. And on top of these are 12 gold-leaf statues of Disney characters. We are still years out from... Little Mermaid and Belle and the like. Okay. But from this rotunda, there's a 150-foot long ramp that then takes you up to the second floor. And this is where the actual job-seeking process begins. As you walk up the ramp, to either side of you, there are these murals. And as you walk up to the right, as if you are looking out on, on I-4, and all the Disney characters who are now driving into work... Oh, so they're not windows? No, no. It's it's, it's a painting that looks like windows. Interesting. So you've got Roger carpooling with Jessica, and Mickey's been pulled over by Pete and is getting a speeding ticket. So the the first floor is a ramp to the second floor. There we go. There we go. Wow. All right. Then on the left side is the resort right up until 89. So... There's an image in here of Walt in Epcot with Jiminy Cricket, you know, sort of looking out at his last dream achieved. And it's like, it's sort of kind of the rough sketch for the statue that's supposed to come online in the next year or so. Oh, interesting. The idea is you still use the common Disney language to move people up the ramp. So, for example, if you look up the ceiling, you see Peter Pan flying forward he's headed off to neverland and just you march to the top of the ramp just oh. like at the theme parks serving as the weenie to get you deeper into the park you have a cinderella castle actually over the welcome desk and you know where you pick up your application and that sort of thing but it served the same purpose as the full-size castle over at the magic kingdom oh fantastic when Michael Eisner saw what Robert M. Sturman Associates had put together their plans for the casting center, he saw a kindred spirit. He saw someone who actually got Eisner's order, you know, well, request that when I come to work in the morning, I want a building that makes me smile. And so by the time, again, the 61,000 square foot structure comes online and the first applicants come marching through the door in March of 89, Eisner's already begun to steer a boatload of future architectural project Roms' way. And 
By the way, folks, Len and I will be talking about a number of these buildings later this week when we go for a walk from the Skyliner Station over at Disney's Hollywood Studios all the way over to Epcot's International Gateway. You know, we'll be touching on Dolphin the Swan, the Yacht and Beach Club, likewise the Boardwalk. And look for that walk and talk to be offered as a Bandcamp exclusive in the coming weeks here on Disney Dish. And while I have to admit, like Glenn, I am a fan of Robert A.M. Stern's work, I really also have to mention here the reaction that many of the artists and the animators had when they first toured the Roy E. Disney Feature Animation Building, uh, which was about to become their, their new home, the, the center of worldwide animation production for the Mouse House, back in December of 1994. And you can actually see this tour. It's part of that famous feature, Dream on Silly Dreamer, about when it looked like Disney feature animation was effectively going away in the early 2000s. And at one point, you can hear one of the persons taking the tour saying this well-designed but not exactly user-friendly structure reminded him of a postmodern gas chamber. Oof. To Disney's credit, they listened to the complaints of the artists and the animators about this stern design building. Mind you, it took them over a decade to do anything. But beginning in the mid-2020s, this 240,000-square-foot building, which originally cost $70 million to build, Len, mm -hmm. they gutted it. And the interior was redone to make it look more like uh, the Pixar Animation Campus up in Emeryville. And that remodeled version of the Roy Disney Feature Animation Building uh, officially reopened February of 2017. Oh, that's interesting because the Pixar uh, Animation Studio in in Emberville is way more open uh, and very very light. Yeah, let's call in some favors the next time we're in LA, and and because I know you've been to the the Pixar campus in Emeryville, and and maybe we can get a walkthrough of feature animation in Burbank, and I, I think you're going to immediately see the parallels. They they really leaned into that sort of open aesthetic to. Uh, with the hope that it would, would help with the collaborative process and that sort of thing. And it's a great, oh. great space. So, Oh, yeah, let's do that. That'll be fun. Okay. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Jim and I just recorded two exclusive shows in Disneyland and Universal Studios Hollywood with Jim Schull. Until recently, Jim was executive creative director at Walt Disney Imagineering, so you can imagine what it was like for Jim and I to walk through a park with Jim Scholl. And those are all available over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be the special guest on To Sir With Love with Natalie Merchant as she stops at the St. Augustine Amphitheater on her Keep Your Courage tour on Friday, April 28th, 2023, in beautiful downtown St. Augustine, Florida. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.